This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will actually be a guest lecture about pediatric orthopedic infections from Dr. David Bennett, who is an assistant professor of pediatric orthopedic surgery at Phoenix Children's Hospital. Today I would like to discuss pediatric orthopedic infections. I have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. Although there are many facets of pediatric orthopedic infection, today we will be mainly focusing on septic arthritis, osteomyelitis, spine infections, and pyomyositis. Pediatric septic arthritis is one of the most common and potentially dangerous diagnoses in pediatric orthopedics. It is the most common type of pediatric orthopedic infection, usually presenting between one month to five years of age. Half of the time it's in children under age two. 94% are single joint infections and the hip is the most common joint involved in children. Staph aureus is the most common at every age. H. influenzae is common in six-month to five-year-olds who have uh, not undergone vaccination. And gonorrhea in kids over 10 years of age. And gram-negative bacilli is common in immune deficiency and contamination. Staph aureus or pseudomonas is common from puncture wounds. Streptomonia is common from pneumonia and meningitis and other upper respiratory tract infections. Listeria or atypical mycobacteria can come from chronic infection or immune deficiency. Group B strep can come from maternal inoculation of infants. Pathogenesis is typically either direct or indirect inoculation. Hematogenous spread or spread through adjacent tissues are examples. Direct inoculation can also be from an aspiration or an arthrotomy or some sort of trauma. Gout or rheumatic diseases do not eliminate the risk of septic arthritis and often are underlying and sometimes predisposing. A careful history is very important because diabetes or immune deficiency or hematological diseases can also predispose to septic arthritis. Hematogenous spread is the most common cause. Upper respiratory, inner ear, or dental infections are common causes for hematogenous spread. This is in part due to the vascular anatomy. In a neonate, the entire epiphysis shares a blood supply with the metaphysis, and the infection, therefore, can spread into the epiphysis and can produce devastating osteonecrosis of the proximal femur. However, after development of the secondary ossification center, the epiphysis and metaphysis have a separate blood supply. Thus, in an older child, the physis prevents the spread of infection to the epiphysis. However, the metaphysis remains intraarticular and infection may decompress into the joint. In the metaphysis, the nutrient artery terminates and ends in arterioles, which make a hairpin turn adjacent to the physis and feed into the larger venous sinusoids. This results in turbulence and sludging and slowing down of the blood flow, which can lead to deposition of the bacteria. The hip, ankle, shoulder, and elbow all have interarticular physis, which predispose to septic arthritis. History and physical is the most important part of your workup. An experienced physical examination can be diagnostic, however, fevers, acute pain, swelling of one joint, tenderness, warmth, effusions, or swelling, severely limited range of motion, pain with even the slightest motion, Limp or inability to bear weight are vitally important to making the diagnosis. A stepwise and measured approach is very important to diagnosing septic arthritis. Begin with history and physical examination, followed by imaging blood work and joint aspiration if indicated. Septic arthritis has a broad differential diagnosis and therefore requires very deliberate workup. Find out about recent infections, immune integrity, 
nutritional status, fevers, history of trauma, antibiotic administration, and the onset history. On examination, log rolling the leg, looking at the resting position, seeing if they can walk, looking for fevers, swelling, tenderness, and warmth can also be helpful. Imaging, including an x-ray, ultrasound, MRI, and a bone scan can be useful, and labs such as ESR, CRP, CBC, urinalysis, and blood cultures can be helpful as well. If indicated, an aspiration of the joint can be diagnostic. On a CBC, the elevated white cell count with a high percentage of neutrophils could be concerning. Elevated white cell count is more common in septic arthritis than it is in osteomyelitis, and it helps you with leukemia rule out. ESR takes three to five days to peak and returns to normal within three weeks. It's not very reliable or reproducible, but it's part of the diagnostic criteria. It doesn't tend to elevate in response to trauma like CRP does. C-reactive protein is the most sensitive and reliable measure. It's nonspecific, but can help rule out serious bacterial infection 98% of the time when there's no other underlying diagnosis. It increases 1,000-fold within 6 hours and peaks within 24 to 50 hours, which helps with more acute diagnosis, and it tends to renormalize within 7 to 11 days. This is the standard way to monitor the response to treatment afterwards serially. If it's increasing in spite of treatment, 6.5 times more likely to also have osteomyelitis. CRP is a better independent predictor than ESR, and if it is totally normal, there is still a 13% chance of septic arthritis. This graph shows the relative elevations of the C-reactive protein and the ESR. C-reactive protein is more sensitive and acute than the ESR and normalizes more quickly. The Coker criteria is a useful tool for predicting septic arthritis when patients have a fever over 38.5, refuse to bear weight, have an ESR over 40, and a white cell count over 12,000. If all four of these factors are present, there is a 93 to 99.6% risk of septic joint. Later studies further refined this criteria that there is a 99% chance of septic arthritis when the CRP is greater than one, the temperature is greater than 37 degrees, ESR is greater than 20, white cell count is over 11,000, and on radiographs, the joint space is greater than two millimeters. Even when your diagnostic suspicion is high, always get a radiograph. Ultrasonography with a comparison from the contralateral hip can be useful to tell if there is a hip effusion. The order of operation for imaging always begins with x-ray, followed by ultrasound, and an MRI if it is indicated. MRI should always be considered and done with and without contrast. Many times there is concomitant osteomyelitis, but 60% of the time septic arthritis causes reactive bone that looks like osteomyelitis. Conversely, osteomyelitis can cause a joint reactive effusion. Get an x-ray and possibly an ultrasound prior to an MRI, and beware of using an MRI in the absence of a full clinical picture and laboratory workup. Joint aspiration is the gold standard for diagnosis. Interventional radiology and musculoskeletal radiology often will perform after an MRI under the same anesthesia. It's important to actually look at the characteristics of the aspirated fluid. Is it bloody? Is it purulent? Is it colored? An arthrogram can validate a negative aspirate and make sure that it was taken from the joint. 50,000 or more white cell count 
with a high left shift, high protein, and low glucose can help be diagnostic. The gram stain in culture can be negative in up to 18 to 70% of aspirates and does not rule out septic arthritis. This is an example of a fluoroscopically guided hip aspiration. Always send your aspirate for gram stain cell count cultures. The cell count and synovial fluid findings can be helpful with septic arthritis. In general, the gross appearance is opaque. The volume is 5 to 50 milliliters. It has low viscosity and total white cell count is over 50,000 with the left shift over 75%. Antibiotic choice is based on cultures, and if the culture is negative, we start with empiric antibiotics. Admit to the pediatric team, suggest an infectious disease consult uh, to help decide whether PICLINE or orals is needed. Four to six weeks of antibiotics is indicated, and the ESR can be helpful to determine the duration of treatment. Once the diagnosis is made, surgery is indicated. Hold the antibiotics until the OR after the cultures are sent unless the patient is septic. Uh, drain is always used. Uh, Penrose or Hemovac can be used. And we plan a second irrigation and debridement and then cancel it depending on the CRP and fevers as well as the clinical examination after the first surgery. This is an overview of the previously mentioned diagnostic and treatment algorithm for septic arthritis. Complications of septic arthritis, whether it is treated or not, include things like sepsis, death, avascular necrosis, growth arrest, stiffness of the joint, persistent infection, osteomyelitis, and these can be avoided potentially by treating early, monitoring the CRP, and getting an MRI. Pediatric osteomyelitis is less common than septic arthritis. Osteomyelitis is classified by time. Acute, subacute, chronic, and chronic recurrent multifocal osteomyelitis are the four different types. They are classified by the time periods above. Physical examination can be confounding in this population. The symptoms are not as obvious as with septic arthritis. It tends to be less painful and the symptoms are less severe. There is pain and tenderness as well as warmth. There is swelling, but it is not so severe that the patient is unable to walk sometimes. The laboratory workup is not different from septic arthritis with CBC and differential, an ESR and a CRP. The CRP is elevated in 98% of these patients. However, blood cultures can be negative in up to 70% of these patients. Much like septic arthritis, hematogenous spread is the most common route. Radiographs are almost always useful to help you rule out other diagnosis, such as lytic or sclerotic lesions. However, the x-ray may be negative until day 10 to 14 after the onset of infection. Lesions are typically only visible in the bone on radiographs after loss of 30 to 50% of the bone density. There may or may not be soft tissue swelling on radiographs, loss of normal tissue planes. There may be widening of the joint space secondary to a reactive effusion. Comparison views are almost always very helpful in these cases. MRI is more sensitive than a bone scan and a subperiosteal abscess found on MRI may be helpful as well. Pyomyositis may also be apparent as well as septic arthritis. There can also be septic DVTs. An MRI with and without contrast is indicated in these cases.
Septic arthritis can cause reactive bone that looks like osteomyelitis, and chronic osteomyelitis often looks like avascular necrosis on an MRI. Of note, you may also have a joint effusion without septic arthritis, secondary to a reactive effusion. Bone aspiration by interventional radiology can be diagnostic, but is only positive 67 to 93% of the time, and potentially less in younger children. Always keep the potential differential diagnoses on your radar, especially trauma, where the CRP can be elevated but not the ESR, and the pain usually leaves after 36 to 48 hours. Acute osteomyelitis is most common in the metaphysis of the femur. 75% is in the long bones. A study of 657 children in 1997 revealed that the most common site of osteomyelitis is the femur. 27% of the time. It comes about because of transient bacteremia, upper respiratory tract infections, and bacteria can seed via nutrient arteries. The metaphyseal vessels have endothelial gaps that allow bacteria to infiltrate into bone. Local tissue trauma can kick off this cascade. The primary spongiosa is relatively acellular in kids and it's vulnerable to staph aureus. Staph aureus adheres to type 1 collagen, and endotoxins suppress the local immune response. Macrophages and monocytes then fight, and the prostaglandin E increases, and it contributes to the formation of what's called a sequestrum. Inflammatory cytokines cause fever, pain, and lethargy. The mainstay of treatment is antibiotic therapy. Empiric is a broad-spectrum antibiotic. Blood cultures can also help to give an organism, and a higher dose of antibiotics might be required. For some organisms, and for those organisms, consider a PICC line. Admit to pediatrics and have them consult ID as well for antibiotic route administration choice and for selection of the correct antibiotic as well as outpatient follow-up. Surgery is indicated generally when an MRI shows a sequestrum. Failure of antibiotic therapy is another indication. A biopsy might give you a specific organism when the antibiotics fail. But even when it's decompressed and drained, 17% of these can develop chronic osteomyelitis. The abscess forms in the bone at day 4 to 5, so you treat early within 1 to few days of symptom onset. 12% of operatively treated osteomyelitis go on to chronic from acute, versus 4% in non-op. Be especially careful to treat operatively osteomyelitis that is found to be in the femoral head as it tends to go on to become a septic hip. Complications include conversion to chronic osteomyelitis, avascular necrosis, growth arrest, deep venous thrombosis, which can be septic, PE, sepsis, septic arthritis, endocarditis, or pathologic fracture. Conversion to chronic osteomyelitis is related to the length of antibiotic treatment, and three weeks or more has been shown to be better. Growth arrest becomes apparent around age nine, typically. Brody in 1836 described subacute osteomyelitis. It was a difficult entity because it was less obvious with milder symptoms, a very slow and insidious onset, usually two weeks Before the symptoms, the patient had the infection, normal labs, and it looks like neoplasia in about half of the patients. The diagnosis can take three to five months on average, but an MRI with and without contrast has helped. 
Almost half of osteomyelitis diagnosis are subacute in nature. They're often culture negative. Positive cultures are only found in 20, 90, 61% of the patients. Staph aureus is the most common organism. It is more diverse in its locations than acute, more diaphyseal and epiphyseal, and it's found to be in older kids as well. The pathophysiology of subacute osteomyelitis is more related to an altered host pathogen response. There's usually a lower virulence bacteria, administration of the wrong antibiotics or for other infections, and sometimes this one looks like cancer. The workup is the same as septic arthritis and other types of osteomyelitis, but sometimes you will need a contrasted CT to help identify the lesion. Plan for a biopsy with ortho-oncology involved in the decision to move forward. Chronic osteomyelitis usually comes from acute hematogenous osteomyelitis, causes avascular necrosis, staph aureus is the most common organism, and the tibia is the most common site. These can develop into subperiosteal abscesses. It deprives the bone of the periosteal blood supply. Staph aureus binds to the bone and can survive inside of osteoblasts. A sequestrum of dead infected bone can develop, and involucrum re is reactive new bone, and that can also develop. However, sequestrum is an operative indication, whereas an involucrum is not necessarily. Antibiotic choice is usually guided by infectious disease, but rifampin is a reasonable antibiotic choice to start with empiric treatment. Six to nine months of antibiotics might be required. Close monitoring, particularly of the ESR and the CRP, is needed. Surgery is almost always needed for these. During surgery, a thorough irrigation and debridement is important. PMMA and antibiotic beads can be used and then switched out every four to six weeks, as well as a PICC line or oral antibiotics, depending on the infectious disease risks. Involucrum is a good sign that the bone will live. The most common complication is recurrence in 20 to 30% of patients. Calconeal osteomyelitis is a specific entity. It can destroy the apophyseal plate, but there is a 92% cure rate if you get treating it within 48 hours. Over five days to beginning treatment, 75% of the time you end up needing surgery. Operate when you have a sequestrum or failed IV antibiotics. Pediatric spine infections have a similar approach. Spine infections represent only 1-2% to of all osteomyelitis. Vertebral body osteomyelitis is very similar to discitis, except for that discitis is usually under age 7.5 and the fevers are lower than osteomyelitis, but they do have severe back pain. Evaluation and treatment of vertebral body osteomyelitis is the same as with discitis in children. L3, 4, and 5 are the most common levels affected by vertebral body osteomyelitis. Staph aureus is the most common organism. Vessels from the vertebral body in plate to the disc are confluent up till age 7. So often, if you have vertebral body osteomyelitis, you'll have an adjacent discitis. Cultures are only... 30 to 50% positive. IV antibiotics gives the lowest recurrence rate. Average diagnostic delay is approximately two months to treatment. The workup and treatment is in general the same as with osteomyelitis and septic arthritis. 
However, a SPECT scan can be done for equivocal cases before you turn to an MRI. Eventual MRI is diagnostic with a sensitivity of 96% and specificity of 93%. Empiric treatment is usually against staph aureus, but blood cultures will guide treatment. Biopsy by IR can be done with CT guidance. Antibiotics for six weeks to six months thereafter can be done. Brace can help with pain in the short term. Long term, we see persistent disc space narrowing. Back pain with extension in 85% of patients persists long term. Intervertebral fusion can also be a long term consequence of severe infections. The mortality rate for necrotizing fasciitis can be as high as 73%. Intervention, however, within four days increases their survival by 12%. Diagnosis is clinical and lab based, but an MRI can also be helpful periodically. Bollet, skin necrosis, crepitus, refractory treatment to antibiotics, fast progression, septic shock can be helpful, as well as using scoring systems to make the diagnosis. Surgery within 24 hours of admission is the only variable that has been shown to affect mortality. 93% survival if surgery is done within that first 24-hour period. 75% survival if surgery is completed within 48 hours of admission. The two most important things to know about necrotizing fasciitis are number one, has a potential to be fatal if not treated quickly. The average cumulative mortality is 33%, but up to 76%. Mortality for this has been unchanged since the 1920s. And number two, the only factor consistently proven to reduce mortality is rapid surgical debridement. 93% of patients receiving surgery within 24 hours survive. This is an infection not only of the fascia, but also of the underlying muscle. There is excessive pain, swelling, and bullae on the skin. Most commonly, it's group A, C, and G strep. Clostridia, MRSA, or it can be polymicrobial. Treatment is emergent surgery, as previously mentioned, as well as IV antibiotics. The LRI next score is a lab-based scoring system that can be used to help whittle down the diagnosis somewhat. Often there is a preceding trauma and one muscle group is involved. Quadriceps muscle is the most common group followed by the iliopsoas and the glute muscles. Staph and group B strep are the most common pathogens. The spread of pyomyositis is usually hematogenous. Skeletal muscle does have some intrinsic resistance to bacterial infection unless it's traumatized. Parasites can often be causative and it's associated with underlying causes such as immune compromise, cancer, diabetes, and HIV. MRI with and without contrast is usually diagnostic. On MRI, the thickness of the rim of microabscess predicts a response to antibiotics alone without surgery. MRI guides the surgical approach as well. The typical empiric treatment for pyomyositis is clindamycin for about four to six weeks. Interventional radiology can usually drain these with a CT-guided aspiration. Surgery is indicated for small loculated abscesses with thick rims on the MRI. Surgery is also for patients at risk for septic shock. Pyomyositis, when it is a strep infection, can be very aggressive locally. It can also be fatal systemically. Mortality rate can be as high as 80% with strep pyomyositis. Septic bursitis is typically a clinical diagnosis. You should aspirate if you're not sure if it's septic, but be careful to do it sterilely. An MRI can also be used if you're not sure if it's bursitis or if there's an overlying cellulitis. 
Septic bursitis usually involves swelling, erythema, pain with flexion, boggy bursa, tenderness to palpation, but range of motion can be intact except for at the terminal points of flexion extension. The most common pathogen is Staph aureus. The treatment is with nafcillin or oxacillin. For MRSA, you can use Clinda or vancomycin. Septic bursitis is treated with irrigation and debridement if needed, Bactrim or clindamycin antibiotics for MRSA. That's all for this review on pediatric orthopedic infections. Thanks to Dr. Dave Bennett for sharing this lecture on the podcast. There will be links in the show notes to learn more about Dr. Bennett as well as links to reach out to him on social media. If you want us to do more guest lectures like these, please let us know by sending us a message on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you have a lecture you think will benefit the OrthoBullets community and would like us to review it for a chance to be featured on the podcast, please email us at info at orthobullets.com. That's info at orthobullets.com. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.